The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, February 7th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump is the only American who can make the rich snobs who cut ahead of you at the security gate at LaGuardia can make them sympathetic figures. The man is a miracle worker. Donald Trump can take a boorish, thuggish, taxi medallion magnate from the five towns, Michael Cohen, turn him into a heroic whistleblower. He could turn the open-collared thumb of a Ukrainian, quote, businessman, end quote, into a brave truth-teller, can turn former self-deporter-in-chief Mitt Romney into a combination Cicero and Spartacus. Donald Trump turned Jim Acosta palatable and eager puppy dog Jimmy Fallon unwatchable. He turned sorine political operative Rick Wilson approachable. He turned George Conway into Ethel Rosenberg. He turned ought-to-be-ignorable nerd Stephen Miller into some kind of empowered, potent, scary lieutenant like an Ayman al-Zawahiri. He turned what should have been essentially the Regis and Joy Philbin of news, Joe and Mika. He turned them into a veritable Emma Goldman and Ernest Hemingway, the modern equivalent of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade on MSNBC. I only mention this because he always talks about how this person or that person in his personal orbit is straight out of central casting. And Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Where's Mike? Central casting. What a job. You can represent me. Now, Central Casting was the institution that supplied background extras for Hollywood, started in the 20s. It still exists today. They supply extras and body doubles and people who look like what you don't think too much about what the people in the background look like. They look like regular, non-notable people. Trump uses it to mean, essentially, a good-looking person or an idealized version of who you'd want out of a person. I have, I don't believe, ever heard him use it in reference to an African-American or to a woman because he does not view them as good-looking background players of his life, but more like testaments to his own appeal if they are, in the case of women, beautiful or, in the case of African-Americans, appreciative of him. What I'm saying is that Donald Trump has both a belief in the power of central casting while not realizing that he has been responsible for casting so many theretofore identifiable types into whole new roles, new roles that they had never thought of playing that they are now inhabiting. What an interesting agent of unwitting chaos. It's really the nicest thing I could say about the guy. On the show today, I will offer a different way of looking at Republican umbrage taking. But first, Moshe Katcher is a stand-up comedian with a past. We all have a past, it turns out. His is just more interesting than yours, definitely mine. But what he really wants to do is hear from us, the audience, and that's why his new album is all about crowd work. It is done in a really thoughtful, interesting, and above all else, funny way. Moshe Catcher, up next. I'm joined now by Moshe Kasher. He came on last time to talk about his uh, late and lamented Comedy Central series, Problematic. 
Uh, Moshe is a stand-up comedian. He's also just an inquisitive guy who seeks out truth wherever it is. And lately, it's been in the crowds that come to him. He turns it around in a form of jujitsu. Comedians call it crowd work. But his new album, which is called Crowd Surfing, is all based on the stories the audience tells him. It's an interesting form of comedy. Moshe is an interesting guy. Thanks for coming on, Moshe. Thank you for having me back. I'm glad to be here. So... Todd Barry did a crowd work album, too. Yeah. A few people have done crowd work albums. As a comedy consumer, I look at it a little like improv, which is, oh, that's an amazing trick, and yet I kind of want the perfectly worked over, distilled version of the great jokes. And yet as I listened to the album, I was saying to myself, I'm laughing as much as I would on what I say I want. So what's going on with me psychologically? Uh, you're wrong. Okay. That's, I think, I think that's, that's what, Why don't more therapists just say that? <laughs> you you have yeah. messed up and you're broken, <laughs> fundamentally right. broken as a psychological being. No, I understand. Actually, it's weird to have a comedy pro- project that I'm putting out that has a rhetorical bent, uh-huh. but it does. Yeah. Uh, and I've discovered it as I've been trying to promote the album. Simultaneously, I put the album out because I think it's funny and awesome and I love it, but also I put it out as a kind of like defensive uh, proof that this is a legitimate part of the art form and mm-hmm. not just a legitimate part, but a foundational part. Yeah. Uh, and there's, since- it's not just people look at it as maybe fun for the audience for a time, but sort of a segue to the real part of comedy, and- a way to break in and getting good with the audience. And now because they're on my side, now here comes the real art. Uh, absolutely. And I reject that mm-hmm. totally because first of all, when you see a true master of that part of stand-up comedy, you have an experience that is so much, I'm not going to say, it's not better than material, it's just, it's it's different. It's like, I have an analogy, which is, you know, the dead. Mm-hmm. They would do their first, their first set, mm-hmm. and it would be their tunes or whatever. And then in act two, they would do what's called going into space, right? Yes. And I always would call Mike, when I was really in the zone doing crowd work, I'm going into space and not, I was never a big dead fan, but I love that idea that like that there are the worked over songs. And then there's this like improvisational kind of magic that happens in their concert. And to me, crowd work is like that. Like when you see a real magician doing it, it doesn't feel like filler. It doesn't feel like, okay, we got here. Now let's get to the real stuff, which is the material. It feels like its own arm of what the stand-up comedy experience is. Stand-up comedians will almost always say, sometimes they're playing a character. I think that that has fallen away for the most part. Right. Right. I mean, it definitely did fall away from the times when that you pretty much had to play a character. Right. Then, you know, Emo Phillips was a character and in character, and he was still respected, and there are other versions of that. But most of the stand-ups I talk to will say that what you're seeing on stage is me, it's not me, but it's a heightened version of me. Sure. Is that less true with crowd work? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Like, there is a small difference between my persona in my material and my persona in crowd work. I would say the persona in crowd work is slightly more more genuinely me. I think it's also nicer and more approachable. That's and right. I don't think you say things that you actually disagree with to make a point as part of like a construct of art. You're mostly saying things that Moshe in real life would say, perhaps tempered by the fact that society ne- needs you to interact in an accessible way. Yeah, although I will not, you know, make fun of people incessantly in yes. real conversation. But yeah, I think you're right. And my persona in my material can is a little bit more heightened me mm-hmm. and can be a little bit more caustic and yes. uh, assertive 
acerbic, but that's what crowd work is so good for because it creates this delivery. It's this uh, the sugar pill that that right. gets the material in. So yeah, I think I'm a little nicer. And actually, I've been th- in thinking about this. I realize like if there's one thing that sets me apart crowd work wise from the other masters of the craft is I think I'm actually the nicest one. <laughs> I think I'm the one uh, and guy that's like my thing is and I didn't do this this isn't by design this is just you discover who you are. Most of crowd work is about like kind of not even cruelly, but it's yeah. about teasing. And my thing is I'm more like, I'm kind of on your side, but I'm also making fun of you at the same time. Right. Like we're kind of in this together. Okay, so the idea is not just to pick a funny shirt that the guy's wearing and you riff on that. There's a structure. That's right. Uh, how'd you decide that you wanted a structure and how'd you decide on this structure specifically? Well, I I decided I wanted a structure because of people like you. Uh-huh. You know, the people that had maybe a slight, I don't want to say bias, but you know, a feeling of like, oh, well, what crowd work is, is it's a, it's a little dog biscuit for the crowd to get them sort of lubricated so that we can get into the actual show, right? right. right? So I knew that that, that was a, a feeling that people had. And I think it's gotten more acute as the years have gone on and more and more people have been doing these hour presentations of material. People go, oh, well, that's what comedy is. It's not this other thing. So, And then I also recognize the truth in that sometimes it feels temporary or it feels in the moment. It feels in the room. It feels like if you weren't there, you missed it. And that's part of, by the way, what's beautiful about it is when you're really operating on a fun, high level doing crowd work. It's a gift that you're giving to that audience that night, and they know it. Yeah. They know that this show is for them and that no other no other crowd will ever get this show and that we're all sharing in a temporary experience that is here and now and awesome. But I wanted to combat that because I knew I was putting the album out in a permanent way, so I came up with this idea. How could I make an album that would make it feel more permanent and it would be, instead of uh, commenting on the uh, the elements in the room, that I could comment on, that I could elicit these stories from people. And I came up with, I was going to call the album originally Five Questions. Mm-hmm. And so I came up with this idea. If I ask the crowd these specific questions and I give them a microphone, then they will tell a story and we can riff off of their best story. And so the questions were like, what's your wildest sexual experience? What was your craziest law enforcement interaction? Your wildest night on drugs? The most embarrassed you've ever been? And uh, there were a few more things that I toggled between that worked better and worse. And that's what the album is. Yeah. In lighting upon those five things, were some of them clearly you were going with them and then you had a couple slots for let's see what works and what doesn't? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in fact, I think one of the questions that, uh, during the weekend was, is there a story that none of these questions cover that you just have to tell? And, uh, and so just in case someone had some wild tale that just didn't get covered. Yeah. Do you like the kind of Q&A where it's uh, pre-scripted? James Lipton at the end of Inside the Actor Studio would always ask, I think, the Proust questionnaire, and that maybe a version of that showed up in Vanity Fair. Anyway, it's the sort of Q&A where it is a script that the questioner goes with. Does that appeal to you? In terms of, like, in terms of doing an album like that? Or well, what, what I'm saying is that this was crowd work, but it's not entirely free form. It's based on the fact that you have those four prompts, four or five prompts. Right. So but what's w- good about a prompt and what's the downside of a prompt? Well, geez, that's interesting. I, I mean, I think that, like, I think that there are already inherent prompts that happen in a, in a normal crowd work situation, yeah, which that's is, right. you know, your classic, what do you do for a living? Yeah. You know, the, there's a reason people ask that. It's because it's like, that's a go-to question that you ask everybody. And 
But I knew. And then there were like four answers that everyone knows the funny thing to say about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah. do you know when you're done being one of them? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So, so I, I, I think like a Proust questionnaire to me. It's a conversation eliciter yes. rather than a necessarily a story eliciter. And I was that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to farm farm stories. By the way, I already have the idea for my next album. Tell me. Crowd work album. Yeah. Crowdsurfing volume two. Tell me about your parents. Uh-huh. That's I, good. I think that would be really fun. And my hope, I've never seen that done. Crowd work exclusively about people's parents because we all have these like five or 10 crazy stories about our parents as well. Yeah. And my hope, my, my desperate hope is that somehow someone will cry. Uh -huh. Now, if I could have, a, 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 I've referenced it a bunch, a Nanette-esque emotional situation happening in yeah. a crowd work album, oh, I feel like my work there would be done. Well, your parents are, um, well, either one of them would be the most interesting parental story I've ever heard. <laughs> but both of them together, well, why don't you tell us in a nutshell who your parents were and how you grew up. So my, and, my yes. father was Lyndon B. Johnson. That's right. And my this mother was, was Jacqueline Onassis. Okay, mm -hmm. so nobody knows about this affair. Well, my father was, both of my parents were, uh, are, de were are deaf. Well, my dad is dead, so he can hear now mm -hmm. in heaven. All I deaf see. people hear in heaven. I don't know if you know that. I saw that, I saw that uh, animated film. Yes, it's it beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful tale. Uh, but my father and my mother were deaf. They met through their mutual de deafness. <laughs> and uh, they yeah. got married very quickly. My, uh, my mother moved in with my father, I think, a week after meeting him. And they had an abusive dynamic that uh, led to my mother taking us away in the night saying we, she was going back for a family vac for a vacation to Oakland and she never returned. Yes. And um, in fact, I have the calendar. I found the calendar in a box of my father's old things, which was, it's really sad. It's, uh, you know, mo B, my mom and the boys in Oakland and there was these X's crossing off the vacation and then eventually the X's stopped and when the X's stopped that's when my life in Oakland began yeah uh, my, so my mother was kind of an atheist hippie deaf woman feminist used to take us to abortion rallies when I was like four anti-abortion rallies I, I assume yeah that's <laughs> right she was a hardcore pro-life <laughs> feminist no anti wait yeah pro-choice rally that's right at any rate it's a very disconcerting feeling <laughs> to be a, a very young man at a pro-choice rally you're yes. like are you sure you wanted to do this are you sure? <laughs> right. <You're> like, <laughs> present company accepted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's the, the implication of an abortion rally. But right? my father, in the absence of my of my uh, of his old family, became it delved into religiosity. He became a, a born again Jew and became extremely religious. He was a Lower East Side like beatnik painter type that uh, Marcel Marceau, according to family legend, saw him like doing some kind of weird performance art and was like, come on the road with me. I'm going to teach you to be the mime. The Holy cow. When a mime taps a deaf man. That's right. That <laughs> is like, it. You could be the guy. He didn't that's go. That's the dream. <laughs> he didn't go. And he instead became really religious and actually locked up all of his paintings and all of his artwork into this, what became almost a mythological storage facility. In, yeah. uh, and it truly became a, a mythological uh, element in our family. It's so much so that when my father died, you know, we wanted me mementos and we would say, can we open the storage facility? And my stepmother was like, no, not yet. And then it was like a year would go by. And it's like, what about now? No, not yet. And then five years went by and we're like, open the storage facility. Like, please, I've got nothing to remember my father by, uh, which is an odd thing to think about because I don't 
my memories of my father are not are not of him as an artist. They're of him as an incredibly ultra orthodox religious man. But it it contained ghosts, you know, and it contained uh, uh, wisps of his old life, you know. And eventually, my stepmother said that there's apparently there's naked pictures in there, uh-huh. and there's films in there of, and I think it was my mother naked. And so I wanted that even more than ever because I just find that so erotic. <laughs> the erotic charge there was just get me <laughs> How in did there. You not? Yeah, but. Um, my father remarried to a woman that was a Satmar Hasid, who the Satmar are like the, the, the largest Hasidic group outside of Chabad. Chabad are the ones that are the friendly, those are the PR Hasids. Oh, some would say overly friendly. <laughs> you, you might say that. Well, they would never say that about the Satmar. Yeah. They are not overly friendly. They are, I would say, perhaps the opposite. Yes. But my father is from They don't a... just reject modernity. They actively seek to, you know, kind of create their own alternative reality. That Well, that's right. Yeah. And, and yeah. I always say- That's a reaction to the Holocaust. It's 100% things. a reaction to the Holocaust, you know? I mean, how could mm-hmm. you not? How could right. you not? I, I, I empathize with their isolationism because at the end of the Holocaust, they said, oh, there's no hope in the, the regular world. There's no hope in, let's just try to save the last shards of us-ness. Right. And my father actually comes from a, sec, a school of- It's like an oppressive utopia in a way. I always think of it as, imagine Wakanda was just in town. Yeah, they've created Wakanda, but it's in it's in Williamsburg. Yeah, you know they built this invisible city, and this, you have to wear fur most of the time. You wear fur. Not only that, my my stepmother and my father they had Lucy and Ricky Ricardo beds. So they had the Ricky Ricardo beds. They lived in that way. They sequestered themselves off from uh, modernity as a reaction to the Holocaust. Yes, and. I have a couple of questions about that and how it created you and your project. But not only that, my family, so she was a Satmar Hasid, my stepmother, but my family actually comes from an even more hardcore version of Hasidic Judaism. Uh, My actual family in New York are not Satmar. They are Skver Hasids. They are from a place called New Square, New York, a place where famously women don't drive, where 100% of the population of New Square voted for Hillary Clinton for senator. 100% because someone said we're voting for Hillary Clinton they are so religious that at my bar mitzvah the most religious situation you'll ever see in your life where the where the catering was satmar catering the square people brought their own food because they didn't trust the kosher certification of the Ricky Ricardo people oh amazing so here are my questions yes one deaf parents crowd work very reliant on listening and interacting quickly yeah any meaning in that yeah, that's interesting. All I can say about that is that my brother and I, the two product, the two hearing products of this deaf family. By the way, every single person that is related to my stepmother and all of their kids from the second marriage, deaf. Everybody's deaf. I mean, I just went to a family reunion. Sixty people, deaf. Everybody. My brother and I, literally the only hearing people. Both of us make our living talking in front of people spoken word nothing to do with deafness there's something there it feels like yeah what's he do he's a rabbi Uh uh-huh and actually also he's one of the only religious people left in the family which is a whole other amazing phenomena oh second question if you want to do a tell me about your parents show are you worried that you're just going to be constantly disappointed and nothing will possibly strike you as interesting given your baseline and everyone else's no i don't have that worry and i'll tell you why i i try to avoid overly sincere philosophical um pondering about stand-up comedy Mm -hmm. because like i said earlier really what it's about is like how funny is this like that's really i don't like i said i don't care if you're a wild and crazy guy or if you're uh, or if you're you know 
know, the seven words you can't say on censorship, a, a polemic about censorship. How funny is it? Is it funny? But I don't like the sincere proclamations, but the closest I get is that when it comes to crowd work, every crowd has a story. Every crowd has some magical thing in it that if I don't discover, it's not because it wasn't there, it's because I didn't get there. So I will listen. By the way, I'll come back in two years with this new album out and I'll go, actually, we adjusted. It wasn't tell me about your parents. But I think like no matter what, there's magic in people in, in people's stories. Everybody, it doesn't have to be inherently intriguing in order for it to be a fascinating story. That said, the first story, the first night I did this crowd surfing taping, the first person I talked to, it was, what's your wildest sexual experience? And you've heard the album, you know, the guy raises his hand and he goes, well, I was living with my dad. I was doing weeks with my dad and weekends with my mom. I came home. There were these weird straps on my bedposts. I was with my girlfriend. We thought it was kind of sexy, so we tied each other up. We made love, and we came outside, and my mother goes, oh, did you find the straps I left? Long story short, this guy's mother was operating a bordello out of his childhood bedroom during the week while his father had visitations. And that was the first person I talked to, and when I heard that, I go, okay, we're good. This <laughs> album is going to be good. Oh, Moshe Catcher. Always a pleasure. The new album is called Crowd Surfing. It's out now. If you subscribe to Spotify, you have it already. Yeah. Thanks, Moshe. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. Nancy Pelosi ripped Trump's State of the Union address four months ago tomorrow. Wait, hold on. That was Wednesday? Jeez, God. And I thought that that would be added to the big list of things that I'm pretty proud of never having to talk about on the show. See also Jared Kushner's imaginary Israel peace plan and the XFL. But I can't help it. Thinking about this and blammo, I had a thought. I'd like to share it with you. When Nancy Pelosi ripped the speech and the Republicans immediately tried to weaponize it via the great umbrage machine, it was, of course, ridiculous. Republican rep Debbie Lesko was on Fox News. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, I mean, that's an important position. And she's acting like a kid ripping up stuff uh, while the president is finishing up his speech talking about God and country. I mean, what in the world yeah. is going on? Let's get it's back to getting things done. Sorry to jump in. We've got breaking news. There's now a new Republican resolution. Breaking news. Yes, that, of course, is the important business of the House that the sadly, sadly partisan impeachment was keeping them from doing. Right after the great ripping, the White House ripped Nancy Pelosi saying, quote, Speaker Pelosi just ripped up one of our last surviving Tuskegee Airmen, the survival of a child born at 21 weeks, the mourning family of Rocky Jones and Kayla Mueller, a service member's reunion with his family. She ripped up a Tuskegee Airman? just like a German in a Messerschmitt. I guess this means she also ripped up Rush Limbaugh, but perhaps in doing so created a dozen tiny mini Limbaugh's, which is exactly how Sean Hannity came into being. It all seems so, so stupid, and the complaints seem so ridiculous, and they are ridiculous, except for this. We, as the non-stupid, are not really in a great position to judge if it is stupid. Every once in a while, a little piece of conservative caterwauling, even if contrived, does strike a chord. Couple examples. When Hillary Clinton called half of Trump's supporters people who feel that government has let them down and are desperate for change, 
but also noted the other half were racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. And she used the phrase basket of deplorables. Well, I remember a lot of people on the left or in the middle saying, oh, so what? Listen to her whole statement and it's more or less right. And she's not talking about all of Trump's supporters. She was pretty clear, but it doesn't matter, especially because the phrase struck our ear. It struck a chord. It's not by design that the Republican complaint machine is distracting us from what are the valid complaints. In fact, you know, there's a Democratic complaint machine, too. It does that also. I mean, the reason the complaint machine exists is because there's money in it. It's a lot of people's jobs. It's their hustle. But it also has this wailing wall effect of making the wailed at seem that nothing is ever legitimate and that no one else could possibly find it legitimate. But you know what? Every once in a while, something lands. I was thinking about this when I was considering Iowa's two winners. So Pete Buttigieg, who famously said this. Mayor Buttigieg, It is time to stop worrying about what the Republicans will say. Look, yes. if... If, if it's true that if we embrace a far left agenda, they're going to say we're a bunch of crazy socialists. If we embrace a conservative agenda, you know what we're, they're going to do? They're going to say we're a bunch of crazy socialists. So let's just stand up. And they, on that debate stage, they were nodding in agreement. Bernie Sanders was nodding in agreement. Why? Well, because he's a crazy socialist. No, he's, he's a sanish socialist, but he is a socialist. He is happy to explain what that means. Something, something, ideals, FDR, New Deal. But, you know, he is supported very actively, very vocally by the Democratic Socialists of America. And uh, right there in their Constitution, Article 2, we are socialists because we share a vision of a humane social order based on popular control of resources and production. So Buttigieg was articulating one vision, which is be anything we want to be because we'll get smeared for it. But I think there is a slightly different version of reality, which is the more you actually embody the complaint, the more likely the complaint is to land. The point is that Democrats have, to some degree, lost the ability to sense what will be resonant arguments among people who don't already think like them. In other words, people they may want to win over in order to get power. So yeah, the Republicans will call Clintonomic socialism, but they'll also call socialism socialism, and that one might strike a chord with, say, some suburban soccer moms who Democrats might want to appeal to in order to win an election. By the way, they might want to also appeal to them because they'd really like their support and they have policies that these suburban soccer moms would rationally prefer. That's true, too. Here's another example. Trump calls every opponent he has ever had corrupt. Uh, just them opposing him, I guess, in his mind, makes them corrupt. Comey was corrupt. Hillary and her emails were corrupt. Uranium One was corrupt. All the dirty cops. But when he said, but when he says Joe Biden's son only got a lucrative job because he was Joe Biden's son, I think that might resonate. One of the reasons is he is right about that. Now, maybe you're saying, oh, that's rich. Look, look who it's coming from. Daddy Trump. But listen to this clip from his grievance press conference of yesterday. But they don't think it's corrupt when a son that made no money, that got thrown out of the military, that had no money at all, is working for $3 million up front, 83000 a month, and that's only Ukraine. Then goes to China, picks up $1.5 billion. Then goes to Romania, I hear, and many other countries. They think that's okay. 
Because if it is, is Ivanka in the audience? Is Ivanka? Boy, my kids could make a fortune. I think they could make a fortune. It's corrupt. Now, if you're of a similar mindset to mine, you're saying, oh, yeah, that's the pot calling the kettle. Oh, look at my African-American over here. But do you get the difference in Trump's eyes and in the eyes of his supporters? Trump's children are in the family business. It's a real estate development business, and they generate money from working in the business, whereas Hunter Biden is in no business other than being Hunter Biden, emphasis on Biden. In fact, with his donations and courting of politicians, especially before he ran for office, Trump used his money to get political influence. Hunter Biden used his political influence to get money. But my overall point is, this will play. It won't be dismissed just because 98.9% of the arguments coming out of the White House are dismissible. True. Stipulated. There is no connection that we know of between Joe Biden and Hunter Biden getting that job. And it definitely didn't necessitate an investigation or withholding aid. But I do think it's a somewhat potent line of attack. And again, the 98.9% of the other stuff is not purposefully laying down cover so that we can't recognize not camouflaging the 1.1 percent that's legitimate but that's the effect and democrats dismiss that at their own risk in general the nonstop nonsense the propaganda it actually doesn't serve its original purpose which is to convince anyone who's not already in the camp but it does have this ancillary and quite troubling side effect side benefit from the perspective of the propagandist Not being able to think like people who you don't already think like is a trap and it blinds you and it's a bad habit and it will prevent your preferred candidate from being elected if he or she falls into this trap. You could argue to some extent, maybe it should prevent them if they can't think like people outside their own bubble. But you know what? That's an argument for another day, meaning another time, meaning when the stakes aren't what they are in 2020. To go back to Nancy Pelosi, I'm not saying that her ripping up a speech will influence one mind or change one vote in nine months' time. I am saying if Democrats don't reorient their minds to conceive that similar actions might play upon voters, then a defeat of Donald Trump will be that much tougher. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST's associate producer. She went to high school in New York City. What's her name and where's she from? I, I just told you that. Daniel Schrader is the GIST's producer, and he wants you to know that he found Jimmy Fallon unwatchable pre-hair tug. The GIST. As I rip up the show notes, I'm ripping up Moshe Kasher's parents. I'm ripping up Ernest Hemingway. I'm ripping up Representative Debbie Lesko. And I am ripping up that offer code of just a checkout for 10% off. And I have to sit with that. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. And now, hello, welcome. Welcome to Rip Show. This is the AM, uh, ASMR Rip. As we listen to the paper rip, think about ripping yourself away from your old destructive habits, mindsets that were getting in the way of a